Hello and welcome to the Power in the Key podcast. I'm your host, Neil Winterton, and joining me on the line as he does every week, it's Ben Cad. How are you, Caddy? Yeah, good day, Winnow. How are you, mates? Um, how, how did your week go? We sort of got through the last of hopefully the, the harsh, harsher lockdown here in Melbourne, but hopefully we're at the other end of, of it, I think, at this stage. Yeah, well, you never know, do you, mate? It's a ch- changing landscape, but yeah, obviously a little disappointing to have a long, a long weekend and sort of be not stuck at home, but you sort of can't drift too far away from your house. I'm sure you would have liked to get away to your holiday house, which you unfortunately can't. No, no, they won't even let us in in, in there down there. So no, we'll just uh, uh, yeah, get out and have a look at some of the more more local attractions uh, today and tomorrow. So yeah, but no, good to at least yeah to get back into some work and and um, still be able to. Keep an eye on the NBA while it's happening as well. So, yeah, well, as we've said over the last couple of weeks, that's been, certainly been the one benefit of being locked down and not being able to work as much as possible. We've been able to consume a lot of basketball. So, we'll jump before we jump into the series that are that are happening at the moment. We'll just quickly touch on the Dallas Mavericks. Now they had Game Seven against the Clippers last Monday, and it was the Clippers that prevailed one twenty six to one eleven. And it was a similar sort story to what we'd seen right throughout that series. It was just a huge. Herculean performance from Luka Doncic, who had 46 points, seven rebounds and 14 assists, and just didn't get a lot of assistance from any of his teammates. I'd sort of employed Porzingis to have a, a really big game, and he probably had one of his better games in this series, but it, it still wasn't enough, and, and you're sort of left with a lot of questions for the Mavericks, which, which direction they're going to go in the offseason. They've got, it looks as if Josh Richardson, we probably thought initially early on in the season he would probably opt out and become a free agent, but he had a, a really disappointing playoff series and he actually only got on the court for six minutes in that deciding game seven. So it sort of sees, I guess, how how much they rate Josh Richardson. So he's probably going to pick up that player option now, that $11.6 million player option, which sort of slashes into that into that uh, that salary space that we were assuming the Mavs would have. I think they might have around the $20 million Mark, if Richardson does pick up pick up that player option, what, what do you think they need to do, Caddy? They've obviously got a guy who's probably a once-in-a-generation style player. They've, they've been very lucky, obviously, to come straight from the Dirk Nowitzki era straight into another superstar uh, era with Luka Doncic. He's eligible, I believe, to sign that rookie extension for around about the $200 million mark. So we'll certainly put pen to paper as soon as possible with that. So there's no danger of... Luca walking out on them anytime soon, but you don't want to see them go down the same path as the Pelicans did uh, with Anthony Davis, and he sort of forced his way out because he didn't see a, a potential championship roster around him. So, what do you think the the Mavs need to do now to be able to fulfil that championship roster around uh, Luca? Yeah, look, I think they're obviously in a really interesting position here. They've had two, you know, pretty admirable efforts in the playoffs. I suppose you'd say in the last two years, and um, you know, Luca's performance again in this. Series in particular was outstanding, and, and in the end, they were probably they probably should have won the series. You know, they should have been able to take um, take care of business at home, particularly there in Game Six and close out the Clippers. But um, they just kept leaving the door ajar and, and haven't been able to do it. And I think, you know, obviously, one of the main reasons is you know that that lack of you know that second or third really really great player. And you know, I, I'm sure when they made the trade for Pazingas, which we, we've touched on a number of times, you know that that was. You know, look to be the play that they were hoping to really pair with um, Luka Doncic as the one-two punch um, in Dallas, really for the next five to ten years. But obviously, with the injuries Kristaps Porzingis has had to endure over his um, relatively short career, it's just hard to see that more upside in Porzingis than what we're currently um, really getting out of him. You know, a guy that's so big, you know, in excess of the seven feet. History just doesn't bode well that they that they get better as they get older, just with the wear and tear that they're having to put on those bodies. So. 
look, you know, you mentioned the cap space they have. There's, there's certainly room there to, to make a move. But, you know, I think the guy that they'll probably look to to, to tie up is, is the guy that's in the, the roster at the moment, which is Hardaway Jr. I think he showed, certainly he's capable of being a being a leading player uh, within the organisation. Whether he can be your second best player, I would probably definitely have my doubts on that. But I think he's a guy that they'd probably look to to tie up if they can get him back at a reasonable number. But And that should still leave them some, some space to go out and be active in the free agent market. We spoke what about do you classify, couple. sorry, what do you classify as a reasonable number for Hardaway? I think you touched on it there, whether he's certainly not going to be your second sort of leading option on a championship contender. It's probably similar to the position Memphis find, find themselves in with Dylan Brooks. You mentioned that last week, I think, when we spoke about Memphis, whether Dylan Brooks is good enough to be a second option on a, on a serious West playoff team. Well, Hardaway Jr. had, had a really good playoff. So 17 points a game. He only shot 41% from the field, but 40% from three. So someone putting up 17 points a game isn't a guy who's good enough to be a second option, in my opinion, on a on a leading contender in, in a really tough West. So what what number would you be comfortable bringing Hardaway back at? Yeah, and the, the other thing with Hardaway, like the, the 17 points is great, but there's not much depth in behind that. Like he's not a great defender or anything like that. Uh, so he is really just a you know, purely an offensive player for, for them. But I think, you know, the number he was at this year, 18.9 million, I think that's probably about right. If he can get, you know, whether it's a three or four year deal at around that 18 to 20 million mark, I think that's probably reasonable reasonable business for both parties. Um, look, I'm sure Dallas would like to, you know, get a discount on that. But I think with the output Hardaway did have in the end, um, I think he'd be looking for something, I'm sure, in that range of the 18 to 20. You know, starting salary in the $18 million range would put, you know, the Maverick pretty much right at the cap and still have their mid-level and their biannual exceptions to use in the free agents. But they can obviously open up some more money if they decline team options on, as you mentioned, Josh Richardson, and then there's also Willie Pauli Stein. So they could get up to another $20 million or so there as well. But, um, yeah, look, we mentioned, I think it was a week or two ago, the free agent class is pretty thin, you know, really uh, heading into next year. You know, Kyle Lowry could be a guy they could look at as a short, short-term rental you know, someone they could get in for a year or two and, and take some of the ball handling pressure away from um, Luka Doncic. You know, that I could see that as a really valuable player to come in and, and you know, they're still keeping them, you know, Hardaway Jr. They'd still have, you know, Maxi Cleaver. They'd still have Dwight Powell. They'd still have their young players, Josh Green and all those type of things. So if you get a guy like Kyle Lowry in there to take, you know, just some of that pressure offensively away from Luka, I think that could make some sense. And, you know, they might be able to free up enough money to, to get, a uh, guy like Kyle Lowry, you know, on a, on a short term, or certainly in terms of years, like a shorter deal. Yeah, well, is somebody, and this is a guy that it's a restricted free agent, so it's always a bit dicey tying up some some money with restricted free agencies because the, the team has, I think, three days or whatever it is to match and they can wait as long as possible and tie that money up so you lose out on some guys. But what about someone like a John Collins from Atlanta? He's obviously still going in the playoffs at the moment, but I think he could be a good fit around Luca. He can obviously play the pick and roll. He's a really good athlete. We've seen him be able to do that with Trey Young, but he, he can also stretch the floor as well. You, you look at their roster and they've got Dwight Powell, Willie Colley-Stein, Kristaps Porzingis, Bo Barn. And and even Maxi Kleber, look, that's sort of five centres on on your roster there. So whether they've configured this roster really well or well enough around Luca is a debate. And obviously John Collins is more a centre as well. So maybe he's not an ideal type. But 
so, so if you don't go down the John Collins path and, and, and you re-sign Hardaway and you've only got your, your mid-level exception there, what, what sort of player do you think they need to bring in? Do you think it's somebody like what they thought Josh Richardson was going to be, one of those sort of 3-and-D type players who can who can lock down the best offensive player for the for the opposition but also hit some threes? Is that the sort of player you think sort of fits best around Luca? Because Luca does a lot of ball handling, so maybe a Kyle Lowry might not be, you know, the, the best player to bring in, or do you think maybe you need someone to to take a little bit of heat off Luca, who can handle the ball as well? Yeah, look, I think that was the angle I was sort of looking at. I mean, you've got a guy like Dorian Finney-Smith who probably plays that three and D role um, pretty well, and I think he, had, you know, he had a much improved season as well. So, you know, I think they they do have hopes, you know, for a guy like you know the Australian Josh Green. Only got limited opportunities in his rookie season. He's another guy that can come in and play that type of role. But yeah, I was sort of looking at Lowry as a guy that you know just when. When in basically in that crunching time there, which you know one of your favourite sayings in, in the playoffs in game six and seven, when when Luca just you know couldn't get an open shot or couldn't get something going, you know a guy like Kyle Lowry could could have been that second guy to, to really um, generate offense and, and you know not just from a scoring but also from a, a playmaking point of view as well. So that's probably where I was looking at it from there. You know the the regular seasons we know are long and arduous, and if, if Luca can get some support, you know in that department, particularly around having to be the, the, the key distributor um, at the offensive end. I think, you know, that there could be some real merit in that. And, and then obviously down in, in the playoffs, there's just another, you know, another guy with great team leadership potential um, who can, you know, make his, make his own shot and get others involved. I think, yeah, that's where I was kind of looking from that point of view. Because when you go up and down the roster, you know, they've got Jalen um, Brunson coming off the bench, you know, in, in a sort of a primary point guard role. But I think, you know, Larry would be a significant upgrade in that position. Oh, he certainly would be, and as you said there, when it when it comes to nut crunching time, you know Kyle Lowry's not going to shy away from anything. He was massive in Game Seven when they were able to win the championship, or Game Six, I think it was, with it when they were able to close out Golden State a couple of seasons ago. So yeah, I'm really interested to see what the Mavs do. As I said, they've got a, a generational star in uh, in Luca. I'm not sure, as I mentioned, that they've configured this roster really well when they've got four or five centers around Luca when there's, you know, in a league that's going small and, and centres are becoming, you know, less impactful than they have been in previous years. To have your roster tied up with so many centres probably isn't ideal. But, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see which path they, they do go down in the off-season. So we'll now jump into into the series that are going at the moment. We'll start in the West and with the series that we did see today, which is the Utah Jazz versus the Clippers. I'll just quickly run through what we've seen so far in the series. So game one, it was... Utah 112-109. Now, they were actually down uh, at one stage by 14 points. They missed 21 shots in a row uh, in that first quarter, which is an incredible feat to be able to come back and win a game where you miss 21 uh, shots in a row is incredible. They were led by Donovan Mitchell, who had 32 points in that second half. His game was outstanding. He ended up with 45 points and five assists. Bogdanovich chipped in with the 18 points. And the Clippers, they were probably a little bit flat, I reckon. Initially, they started pretty well. Their defense was good, but... I reckon their offense looked a little bit flat after that seven-game seven game series and only the, the one day off in between. Uh, Kawhi Leonard had a bit of a pedestrian game for him with 23 points and four assists, and Paul George had a 20 and 10, but he was only 4 or 17 from the field. So game two, you're expecting the Clippers to bounce back, but it was it was Utah uh, again who came out and threw the first punch. They were outstanding early on. Uh, Donovan Mitchell, 27 points in that first half. Uh, they're up 66-53. Uh, at the half, and they were shooting 63% from the field uh, and 47% from three. So we've obviously you know, spoken a lot of times throughout the season about how good Utah are uh, from the three-point line, and, and that, that would obviously continued 
on in that game, and, and they were able to close that game out in the end, one seventeen to one eleven. So with the two two nil uh, lead up going into game three, no teams ever come down from uh, three nil down. So it was desperation stakes for the Clippers, and and, and actually, and uh, the Joes came out on fire. Actually, I think they scored the first eight points, and and our Aussie Joe hit a couple of threes early on, and and Tyler was first to burst was forced, sorry, to burn a timeout early on. But uh, it was the Clippers that responded. They were able to get in front. And again, in that second quarter, Paul George chipped in 13 points and they went they went to halftime today, 15 points in front. Uh, and then they outscored uh, the Clippers, uh, sorry, Utah by 13 point, 15 points, sorry, in that, in that third quarter. And there was just a bit of a procession. But we did see an injury late to Donovan Mitchell in today's game. So he seemed to sort of wanted to come back into the game, but the game was pretty much... Uh, dead and buried by that stage, so they made the smart, the smart decision, I guess, to to leave him on the bench. Paul George had his playoff high this playoff so far with thirty one points. Kawhi Leonard just had one of his normal games: thirty four points, twelve rebounds, and five assists. Donovan Mitchell had thirty points, five rebounds, and four assists, and Aussie Joe had nineteen points. So, what did you see from the game today, Caddy? Did you think we the Clippers might have stumbled upon something that, that they did start? Uh, small. They didn't start a centre. They'd started Zubac in the previous game, and he'd he'd been eaten alive by Mitchell in, in that pick and roll with that drop drop coverage. He was getting just wide open shots. So they they went small, and that probably seemed to work for them uh, in this game. Do you think that maybe they've unlocked unlocked a bit of a key to get to get themselves back into the series, or do you think it was just a little bit of a hiccup for Utah, and they probably looked to be the team to beat at this stage? Yeah, no, look, I think they've certainly stumbled into something. And it's not a surprise they've gone down that track. They have gone with that lineup in, against Dallas as well with Zubac coming off the bench. So, look, they're familiar to, to play with, with those sort of guys in there. And, um, look, it's certainly a way for them to, you know, to really spread the floor and, and probably, you know, take away some of that advantage, you know, Rudy Gobert does have. He, he sort of has battled partic- particularly offensively really in the last couple of games. Um, you know, they not so much playing off the floor, but it, it, it does give them a different look. Uh, for him, and particularly also at the defensive end when they go smaller. So I think we'll see that to continue um, throughout this series for the Clippers. I think they'll they'll probably stick with this lineup they have at the moment. I mean, you know, you look at the way the Clippers, and you know, it's quite a credit to a guy like Reggie Jackson, who you know has really been shaken, you know, most of his career in, in some of his previous stops. But he's been able to come out in these playoffs and almost become a dead eye three point shooter. He's um, been nailing it from everywhere, so he, he's really given them a, a, a real good spark. In that starting uh, starting lineup as well, and the guy today that really assisted as well was Nicholas Batum, who who had a really good game um, in that starting lineup. So he's been a bit of a bargain um, buy really at, at last season's off uh, last year's off season, where you know he couldn't have been playing any any poorer really as a Charlotte uh, Charlotte Hornet. And he's been been able to come across to the Clippers and you know not have a, a super season, but yeah, he's really showing his um, value and versatility. In these playoffs, so it was an interesting game today. The you know just to start with, Utah came out of the block. I think they were out to a eight to three lead within the first couple of minutes. Kimball had hit two three pointers, and then you know they had to t- take a really early time out the Clippers, and they were able to reset and focus and, and come back out. And you know the the Jazz pretty much were down between that twelve to sixteen point range there for the majority of the you know third and fourth quarters, and just couldn't close the gap. And in the end, um, the Clippers just were playing so well defensively, and you know they couldn't. You know, they really couldn't get their game going in the end, Utah, and they just couldn't get a stop. That was the other problem. So the Clippers were just having their way with the Utah defense, and Rudy Gobert really needs to, you know, not, you know, probably lift his game a little bit at, at that end because they were, you know, really getting past him as well. So, um, look, it was quite a pleasure to watch both sides, you know, shooting the three ball in this game. It was, um, you know, really hot from three 
a lot of the, you know, we know the Clippers are the number one three-point shooting team in the league in the regular season. The Utah Jazz weren't too far behind them when we saw that in, in full display today. It was the Utah shooting, you know, 43% from the uh, three and the Clippers went at 50, 52.8%. So, yeah, it was, it was quite a... Quite a pleasure to watch both teams going um, three-pointer for three-pointer there throughout this game. But the Clippers got on the board in the series and, you know, they'll, they'll feel pretty good hope, hoping to level it up in the next game. So we'll touch on Utah. What Do you think what how they're operating at the moment, just so heavily reliant upon Donovan Mitchell? He's averaging the 37 points a game. He's shooting 27 field goals a, uh, a game. And the next best is Jordan Clarkson at 16. So do you think... The way they're so heavily reliant upon Donovan Mitchell is the way that's going to be successful going forward, or do you think this is just a byproduct of the fact that Mike Conley, who's been, you know, there, there were some arguments that Conley should have been, he, he actually was an All Star in the end, I think, wasn't he? One of those injury yeah, replacements. Yeah. So he was an All Star. He has, oh, hasn't played at all in this series. So do you think this is just a byproduct of Conley being out and Donovan Mitchell having to maybe step up to an even larger role, or? Do they need to spread the love a little bit more? I'm looking at someone like Bogdanovich who's only taking the 10 shots a game. Uh, he's at the 14 points. So you'd like to see a little bit more out of him. Do you think they need to spread the love a little bit more? Or do you think that in the playoffs, you need to rely upon your best players? Mitchell's been outstanding. So they just got to sort of ride him as much as possible. Oh, they do to an extent, but it's really hard for them to, you know, Mitchell's you know, basically almost an undersized uh, guard at that position. Um, and he's coming up against a team of the Clippers that are, you know, so long, really. In that their wing rotation, you know, but guys like Morris, uh, Kawhi, obviously Paul George, you know, Reggie, Reggie Jackson as well. So they they've um, you know really able to put a lot of pressure on on Donovan Mitchell in particular. And look, he's been absolutely terrific. And there was I saw Stephen A. Smith going off yesterday saying he was the the greatest Utah Jazz player in history already. And <laughs> uh, that's, really took some, Stephen took A. Getting a little today. bit excited, you would have thought. Carl uh, Malone might have a little bit, and even John Stockton might have a little bit to say about that. I would have thought. Yeah, I would have thought. Look, he's probably gone past the great Jeff Hornacek, I'd say, at this stage, but I'd still have <laughs> Malone and Stockton in, in a class just ahead. But Mitchell's been fantastic. And, and you're right, they, he, he is going to need a lot more support offensively. Clarkson you know, didn't have a good shooting day today, but you know, he's he's generally been a guy that's been able to rely on from off for some offense. Uh, Bogdanovich, you mentioned that he, was, he struggled today. They were really you know closing out on him. They weren't letting him get too many open shots up. But Joe Ingles is the guy in the last two games in particular that's you know, really come out of his funk and, you know, we've been crying out for that um, since the playoffs started. He'd, he'd really lost his confidence and, he, you know, and, and I think Clint Snyder lost a bit of confidence in him as well. But, you know, almost through necessity with Conley out, they've had to put the ball back in his hand. And, you know, just at, at times the Clippers um, surprisingly have left him wide, wide open and he's been able to get his shot going again in goals. But, yeah, they, they definitely need, you know, more support for Mitchell. He, he looks quite hobbled at the end of game, um, the end of game two. He looked really, really sore and proppy, and you think, you know, you'd almost need him to, to potentially have a have a day off or a game off, you know, almost just to give the Clippers a game because he looked, you know, that banged up. And then obviously at the end of this one, he, he went to the locker room as well during the last quarter. So you hope, you know, he can uh, sustain uh, throughout because, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, Conley's getting um, wiped out of these games pretty early on in terms of the build-up. Um, they're not really game-time decisions at all, so I don't know how soon he's going to be back in action. And you know, they're going to need Clarkson in particular. Bogdanovich, you mentioned. Outside of that, you know, they are pretty limited offensively. Ingles will give you what he's got. Gobert, O'Neal, Niang, uh, you know, they're and Favors. You know, they're obviously probably more defensive-minded players at best. So yeah, fascinating to see how Utah can rebound from this one and not get too much momentum handed back to the Clippers. Yeah, Conley, you said there, we don't know how long he's going to be at it. And it was a hamstring injury, and I think he'd had done that hamstring previously. So you'd imagine 
he might be right up against it, similar to James Harden in the Brooklyn series about being able to come back. So, yeah, that. I think they need to spread the love around a little bit more, asking Donovan Mitchell to, to take on such a huge load against you know, a really good defenders. Kawhi's been taking that, that, that task of defending him a lot more. It's, it's, it's really difficult, and he's, he's been outstanding, but, yeah, there's got to be he's, – he's got to be running low on petrol tickets. He came in into the playoffs under an injury cloud, so he's probably not 100%, and, and we're ask, I think they're asking a hell of a lot out of him. So I think they need to, to, to spread the love a bit more and, and give him a much as much – a little bit more assistance. What about from – a Clippers perspective. How are you seeing them so far? It looks like they're they're a little bit still undecided on what their best rotation is. That they've played ten guys have played in every game. Terrence Mann's had his numbers. Uh, sorry, his minutes chopped down. He hardly played today. Rondo's only played the one game. Demarcus has played two games. Didn't play at all today. I think they're just still searching a little bit for for what their best lineup is. I, I mentioned the fact that they went small today, and that's that probably seems to be their best way to go about it. But interestingly, the one thing for me, Marcus Morris actually had this was the second-best three-point shooter percentage-wise in the NBA during the regular season, which astounded me when I discovered that. But during the during this series, he's shooting 6.3% from three. So he's obviously, you know, that's tumbled right down. And, and if they're going to go small, they need that guy who's playing the small ball five to be able to knock down the three. So if Marcus Morris can't start to knock down some threes like he did in that in that deciding game seven against Dallas, it's, it's going to be difficult for the Clippers to to win this series, I think. But what what are you seeing out of the Clippers? Do you think they've got their best line lineup set, or are they still searching? What are you seeing out of them? Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, I think we acknowledge as well, you know, the news today that Serge Barker is going to be out for the rest of the season. He's having back surgery, so look, he's a guy that you're talking about as a small ball five who could have played that role almost perfectly for this Clippers team. So that you know, we talk about Conley not being there for Utah, but Ibaka is certainly a guy that the Clippers. Um, are going to be missing for the remainder of the playoffs. So, but look, I think, yeah, as, you, as we mentioned, I think the starting five they've got now is probably what they'll continue with throughout the rest of the playoffs and Zubac coming off the bench. Now, Luke Kennard, the guy that, you know, was buried um, in this rotation a fair, fair portion of the season, he's come into a larger role over the past few games. So, look, if they're going to continue to do that. But as you said, they, I think they're still a bit mixed around their best, say, nine-man rotation when, you know, generally we see that in the playoffs, the teams or the coaches generally cut it right back to, you know, the eight or nine significant players. But we're still seeing, you know, a rate rotation of up to at least 10 players here with the Clippers, and that's not including, you know, as you mentioned, a guy like Rajon Rondo who's, who's not getting off off the bench at all. And, you know, DeMarcus Cousins has is, is been played really fleetingly. So, look, they, they've got enough depth there. Um, it's just working out the right balance. But I think, they, as I said, that five-man starting lineup now, particularly with Reggie Jackson finding his shot, will be their way forward. And, look, I think they're right back in the series, you know, to get Paul George into some form today. He was you know, really fantastic the way he played today and, and, and was there, probably led the way for them, I think, uh, in this game. So if they can you know, hold serve at home again in the in game four, go back to Utah 2-2. And look, we, we know how hard it is a place to win in Utah. So that's where this home court advantage um, is so important. So look, they just obviously can't afford to make a mistake um, in the next game and go down 3-1 because it will be absolutely curtains. There's no chance they'll win two games in Utah. So I think, you know, I'd, I'd back them in to, to win this next game at, at home, um, make it two all. And, you know, I've got a feeling this series is going to go go the distance and all the way to, to game seven, I, I would assume, if, if things continue as they have been. Yeah, I've got a feeling they're going to win game two as well. Uh, sorry, game four as well. So let's say that happens. Where do you sit with this now? Who are you leaning towards? It sounds like I'm detecting a bit of Clippers love here. Is that who you're leaning towards? I oh, know. Look, I think, yeah, as I said, I think they'll get it to seven, but then I, I 
I do think that home court advantage um, that we've seen all season for Utah, you know, and and let's hopefully assume Connolly could be back in the lineup by by then if it does go to seven. I think they will um, proceed through to the Western Conference uh, finals, and you know they were my pick last week, and I'll stick with Utah to to make it through. So look, I think they're you know they're not going to do it easy. You know they they were pretty comfortable in games one and two. The Clippers obviously were were. You know, pretty easy winners today, but I think yeah, if it does go the distance, I'll back Utah to go go through in seven. I think Utah will need to close it out in six because if we get to a game seven, I'm I'm going with Kawhi every day of the week. We've seen him a number of times in his playoff career be able to close out game sevens. He he doesn't shrink away from the moment. So not that I don't I don't think Donovan Mitchell will either, mind you. But we we've just got we've seen Kawhi's got the runs on the board. So if we get to game seven, as silly as that sounds, and because it, it's in Utah, I'm going to be going with the Clippers. So. I'll just lean Utah. I think maybe I'm hoping Conley gets back, and I think they deserve to to go through the Western Conference Finals. They've been the best team in the whole NBA right throughout the season. So I think it'd be just reward for Utah to get through, and I'm going to back them to do that in six. Because as I said, if they get through to seven, I think they could be in a little bit of trouble. So we'll jump over now to the other series in the West, which is Phoenix Suns versus Denver. Uh, game one saw Phoenix come away 122 to 105. Denver were actually up by one at half time, um, and Phoenix were actually down by 10 points early on in that third quarter. But then for the rest of the way, they outscored uh, Denver 62 to 35, um, which which was incredible. And it was Chris Paul down the stretch that started to find his groove. He started to hit that little mid range shot that we we love to see Chris Paul hit and. Um, he ended up with 21 points, 11 assists, uh, and Booker had 21 points and 8 assists. Mikael Bridges was outstanding in Game 1 with 23 points, 5 rebounds and 5 assists. And DeAndre Ayton did did as good a job as you possibly can do uh, guarding Nikola Jokic and also put up 20 and 10. So f- four of their starters reached the 20-point mark there, which is obviously what you're looking for um, from your starters. Uh, Jokic had 22 points, 9 rebounds and 3 assists. And Aaron Gordon had the 18 points uh, for Denver in Game 1. Game two, it was Phoenix again, 123 to 98. Uh, and the first half, it was actually Nikola Jokic, sorry, had, had a big first half with 15 points, six rebounds, and four assists. And Will Barton had his first game of the series, and he actually injected some really good offense for them off the bench with seven points in that first half. But Phoenix were up 52 42 at halftime. They're getting a pretty even contribution uh, from all their players. Devin Book had 13 points in that first half, but then it was a 9-0 run to start the third quarter for Phoenix. Uh, the, not Jokic wasn't getting the ball; they were jacking up some rust threes, some rust threes. Sorry, and Chris Paul just took over in that third quarter. He had six assists. Uh, he was just a maestro. It was just a joy to watch Chris Paul. It was one of those those games where Chris Paul just controls absolutely everything, and Phoenix were never in any doubt. And they outscored uh, Denver by nine points in that quarter. And as I said, they ended up running away with with the win, one twenty three to ninety eight. Chris Paul's line for the game: seventeen points, five rebounds, fifteen assists, and no turnovers. So, so through the first two games of this series, Chris Paul had twenty six uh, assists and one turnover, which is just absolutely astounding. Uh, Devin Book had 18 points and 10 rebounds, and Aiton, again, continued to do a really good job on Jokic. He had the 15 points, 10 rebounds, and limited, we'll say limited, uh, Jokic to 24 points, 13 rebounds, and six assists. And then in Game 3 yesterday, we were hoping Denver, for the sake of the series, were able to get back into it, uh, but they weren't. The margin was only four points at half time, uh, but it was Devin Booker in the third quarter who had 11 points. And Phoenix were up 14 points at three-quarter time, and then that was basically all she wrote. They they could they could just never peg that uh, gap enough to be able to put any pressure on Phoenix. 
Uh, Booker had his best game of the series with 28.6 rebounds and four assists. Chris Paul clearly over whatever shoulder injury he had early on against the Lakers, 27.6 rebounds and eight assists. Jokic had an incredible game. He couldn't do much more, 32 points, 20 rebounds and 10 assists. And uh, Monte Morris off the bench had his best game of the series. He'd been struggling up until game three. He had the 21 points and five assists. So, Caddy, is this, I guess the question is, is this series over? Is it, is it as simple as the fact that Denver have just had too many injuries? Jamal Murray, we thought maybe they are going to be able to cover that uh, right throughout the playoffs. They were able to do that at the end of the season. They didn't miss him too much in the first round against Portland. But are we now asking too much out of their backcourt of Rivers and Compazzo and Morris off the bench? It also looks like Porter Jr. is pretty hampered at the moment with the back injury. So just so much has been forced onto the plate of Nikola Jokic. He's doing all that he can do, but he just looks like he's under man. Is it as simple as that? Is this series basically over? Yeah, look, I think the chickens have come home to roost on this one. Uh, we know with Denver, you know, it's admirable if they've been, you know, particularly since the Jamal Murray injury, the back end of the regular season and then in the first round against Portland. Um, I think the, the toll's just become too great for them. Um, the, the Yeah, that backcourt depth that we've, that you mentioned and we spoke about in the lead up to the series, you know, I mentioned it being, you know, the biggest concern clearly that I had um, when you looked at the rosters and, um, you know, obviously Phoenix has got great strength in that that particular area. I've, you know, it just looks like it's all become almost a bit too hard now for the Nuggets. It's almost hard to see them rebounding back even tomorrow to, to force a game five. I think this could be a sweep. Uh, Phoenix are just playing absolutely terrific basketball. It, it's, it's firing on all cylinders. Um, you know, those opening two games, the crowd were going absolutely crazy. And, you know, and, and you know, any concern that you may have had about Phoenix being, you know, immature or underprepared um, for these type of games, I think you could put, put that to the side now. These these guys, Booker, Aiden in particular, and Bridges, you know, they've stepped up to the plate and then they've just been led absolutely perfectly by Chris Paul, as you mentioned. He's just playing these guys like it's... um. Yeah, like it. Yeah, they're playing at home on a on a game console. He's doing it so easily. Some of his shooting, you know, inside the paint, his step back little jumpers and floaters are working. He's shooting the three ball well. You know, we know his free throw shooting is almost historically great. He's just been absolutely brilliant. Um, Jay Crowder's given good support as well, and and you know, I just continue to get be surprised by their sort of underrated bench mob. I suppose you'd call them, and Cameron Payne and Cam Johnson, Tory Craig, Sarich. You know, on paper. Certainly question whether it's good enough to be a championship-level team, but they've all stepped up to the plate in this series and really they've put Denver to the sword all the way through. And I think you know, there's only so much that Jokic can do. We, we spoke about that, that you know, you'd almost expect him to get these type of uh, numbers like he did yesterday. The 32.20 rebound Tennessee's game was just you know statistically incredible, um, but it's just not, not enough. And you know, just that inability now to cover from an offensive point of view to share the load with Murray out. Uh, Porter Jr., as you said, is probably labouring a little bit. Darren Gordon just hasn't hasn't been up to it um, offensively. You know, he's doing a reasonable job at the defensive end, but he's just not, you know, not really good enough now, even as the third banana in this situation. So, um, look, I think it's curtains for the Nuggets, and I think they'll they'll die a pretty quick death uh, tomorrow in Denver in Game Four, and, and Phoenix can sit back probably for an, have an, almost a week off as they watch uh, the Clippers and Utah bash each other up, uh, as we mentioned, maybe in six or seven games. So you mentioned last week that it was going to come down to the guards of Denver, Austin Rivers, Compazzo, and Monte Morris, and, and they've basically been outplayed by the, the bench mob, as you called them there, from Phoenix. So it's just it just hasn't been good enough. You, you look at Austin Rivers, he's averaging six points a game. Uh, Compazzo's averaging 7.7 7 points a game, and Monte Morris is averaging 8.7 points a game. So 
you stack that up against the, the starting the starting uh, guards for Phoenix. Uh, Devin Booker's at 22 points a game, and Chris Paul's at a shade under 22 points a game. So th- 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 this has just been, unfortunately for Denver, all these injuries have, as you said, that, what did you say, the chickens have come home to roost or however you put it. That, that's just unfortunately been the case. So they've battled manfully, obviously, at the end of the season and then that first round of the playoffs, and, and now it's just all caught up to them. So from a Phoenix p- perspective, I've just been absolutely super impressed by them. That we we had to we had to have some question marks over them leading into the playoffs just be just because of the mere fact that you know, apart from Chris Paul and and Jay Crowder, these guys hadn't seen any playoff uh, minutes at all. But they they've all risen to the occasion. You look at their their starting five is incredible. So Booker's averaging twenty two points a game. As I said, Chris Paul just under twenty two points a game. Mikael Bridges almost seventeen points a game. We've got DeAndre Ayton, 15 points a game, nearly 12 rebounds. And Jay Crowder, 13 points a game, shooting 52% from three. So that's that's all you want from him. He, he, he pretty much only shoots three-pointers, and he's hitting him at 52% uh, from three. So they've been super impressive. For you, Caddy, are you seeing any holes in Phoenix at the moment where you could sort of pick apart and think that they're, they're not a legitimate uh, title threat? Or do you think the fact that Chris Paul and Devin Booker have been so good as a backcourt that they basically now have shunted themselves up into favoritism in the West? Yeah, look, and you know, I think if they do get you know a matchup and it is Utah, they've shown during the regular season that they're a team that are capable of going head to head with the Jazz. They've had a, a, a had a good record against them this season. And look, I think if Chris Paul can somehow continue to play at the level that we've seen him, particularly in this series against Denver, well, they're they're every chance to potentially go all the way here because. You know, they, they're doing this series so easily. I, I mentioned, you know, there's a chance they might get extended rest before potential Western Conference final matchup, which I think is going to be really important. Um, look, I, I think they're every chance to get through, and, and well, certainly this series, and then all the way through to the finals. And then, you know, a, as we've seen, I don't think we can hand on heart categorically say which team is going to be coming out of the East. It's, you know, going to be a race of three there. And, you know, I think they'll take their chances against all those sides, particularly if it is, a, if, you know, say it is Brooklyn and they, they, if they're playing potentially without James Harden still at that point, well, that's you know that could be an advantage to Phoenix, and you know I think they've got you know they they've got the good coverage in that starting five, big and small, that they can you know really take on anyone. And you look even deeper down their roster, you know we mentioned the you know that bench mob before. Well, they're not even getting um, courts on these guys, Langston Galloway, uh, Frank Kaminsky, and Etwan Moore. So they're three guys that have all had reasonably lengthy NBA careers and have you know been around quite a while um, at different stops and, and are all capable in their own right of being capable role players as well. So they do bat really, really deep. So there's some good coverage there if there is a potential injury to, to a player in that you know nine or ten man rotation. They, they've got some additional coverage there deep down on the roster. So I think they're pretty well set up. And if we get this continued, as you said, you know, really good shooting from Drake, Jay Crowder and he, the aggressiveness he's bringing as well. Um, you know, it's really important to help these younger players along. And, uh, you know, it's hard to find any holes in what they're doing at the moment and whether they're getting an easy kill here with the Nuggets is, is there to be seen. But, you know, I like the way they're going about and I, I think they'd be feeling really good about their chances, not just in the West, but, you know, potentially going all the way here. No doubt. that I've just, As I said, I've just, I've just been super impressed by the way they've played. They're just so fun to watch too. I, and, you know, I'm unabashed Chris Chris Paul fan and watching him in game two, just it was just surgical life the way he was just orchestrating everything, particularly that third quarter, as I mentioned, with with the six assists. And then he started to knock down the three and it was just – they just looked unbeatable the way, the way they were playing. And as you said there, the crowd were going nuts. So they've they've got a clear uh, – a really good home court advantage there. So, um, yeah, they're going to be really tough out, uh, you know, in, the, in we're assuming they're going to get through the Western Conference Finals. So whoever they come up against, they're going to 
going to be really tough out. So, you know, you just you just got to take your hats off to Phoenix to, to be able to jump up, get the number two seed uh, in the regular season, and then to come out in the playoffs and play the basketball they've been playing, knock off the defending champion Lakers in the first round. Yes, they had an injury to Anthony Davis, but they still went out and did the job. And then to, to be putting to bed... A Denver team that's got the MVP, you know, so convincingly, you, you can't be anything but impressed so far by the Phoenix Suns. So we'll now skip over, jump over, sorry, into the East and, and the Brooklyn Nets versus Milwaukee series. So we spoke about game one last week. So game two, we were expecting, I think I spoke about last week, how there was some positives to take away from the fact that Milwaukee had lost that game and a lot of things went wrong, but it was still pretty close. So I was expecting uh, Milwaukee to be able to put up a bit of a fight, but it was just a disaster, really. They were down by 26 points at half time, So it was more of the same. Chris Middleton was horrendous again after I said last week he played one of the, the worst playoff games by a supposed all-star player that I'd seen. He missed his first eight shots uh, in game two. And had at halftime, he's three from 11 from the field, only had the four turnovers, uh, and sorry, had the four turnovers on top of that. And Giannis, only three from eight, he was settling for far too many jumpers. And as I said, down by 26 at halftime, they ended up losing the game 86 to 125, which was just embarrassing. Kevin Durant was outstanding again with 32 points and six assists, and Kyrie Irving had 22 points and six assists. For the Bucks, it was Giannis, basically their best player. He only had the 18 points, 10 rebounds, and 4 assists. But as I said, just a really disappointing game for Milwaukee. You'd expected them to bounce back after Game 1. Everybody had been so hyped and pumped up for this series. And to see them come out and basically lay an egg from, from Minute 1 in Game 2 was really disappointing. But, you know, you had to tip your cap to Brooklyn because they were outstanding on the, on the defensive end and the offensive end. And the stat actually popped up that after that game, through their first seven playoff games, Caddy, the Nets were shooting as a team 50% from the floor, 43% from three, and 91% from the line. So as a team, they were in that, you know, that majestic 50-40-90 club. I mean, that, that's how good they were going, uh, not only obviously in their first round series, but right through the first two games in this Milwaukee series. Then game three we saw on Friday, was it? I think it was Friday, Caddy. This <laughs> this was just an absolute rock fight. It was it was one of the lowest scoring games. It was hearkening back to the, the Detroit Pistons days when they, you know, had the Chansey Billups and, and the two Wallaces. It was just defense, defense, or not so much defense. It was just that nobody could really hit a shot. It was, it was, uh, the final score was 86 to 83. But Milwaukee actually come out and you could see there was some really tense. It was obviously their first home game in this series and they got off to a, to a 9-0 start. So they just come out and blitzed. Giannis was attacking the cup. Middleton was hitting his shots. Giannis was still settling for some of those bad threes, but I, I thought he was really good. Uh, they're actually up 30 to 11 at quarter time. So they're up by 19 points at, at the quarter time break there. As I said, Middleton was outstanding. He had 15 points in the first quarter and Giannis had 15 points. So between the two of them, they had the whole 30 points. Uh, which was ab- absolutely incredible. But I thought I had a quick look at the box score at that quarter time and because and, I thought they were playing really well, obviously, but they'd only had three assists during that first quarter. So I, I just thought they were isolating it a little bit too much as we'd seen through those first two games, but it was obviously working for them in that first quarter because Giannis and Middleton were both hitting their shots. But it was Brooklyn, you, you didn't think they were going to lie down and they come out in that second quarter, got off to a 7-0 start, uh, it was actually a 15-2 start overall in that first quarter, and they trimmed they trimmed the gap to three points only at uh, at the halftime break. So Milwaukee had gone from 19 points up at quarter time to halftime only being up by three points, and you were looking at it thinking, oh, God, they'd thrown their best punch at Brooklyn. Brooklyn had taken it, and you were probably thinking, well, Brooklyn might be able to pull away in that second half. But 
you know, credit to Teal Milwaukee. I thought that that they sort of they got a little bit more aggressive in that in that third quarter. Yana started to attack a little bit more. He settled to, for a, a few too many jumpers. I, I felt in that second quarter. Uh, even though he missed his first couple layups, he thought he was a little bit more attacking. But on the Brooklyn perspective side of things, I thought Durant was super aggressive. He put up five shots in that first three minutes. Actually, had nine shots for the quarter and twelve points. And and at the three quarter time break, it was Milwaukee up by three points. And the last quarter was just, was just a, a deep or an offensive slugfest. It was just nobody could hit a shot. Brooklyn only hit 33% from the field in the last quarter, and the Bucks only hit 42% from the field. But it was KD who was the one guy who was actually been able to, to be able to hit a shot during that last quarter. He 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 peeled off nine straight points to give um, Brooklyn the lead, and it looked like that they were going to go on and win the game. But they they for some reason they sort of went away from him. Bruce Brown took their last two shots. Their second last one, he missed that little floater. He ran that pick and roll uh, with Kyrie Irving, missed the floater. And then Drew Holiday got it. And I don't know what happened, whether they thought he was going to call a timeout, but he almost hit, he sort of got past his defender and there was no resistance at the rim and he just hit an uncontested layup to give them the lead. Uh, and then again, somehow it ended up Bruce Brown taking the shot uh, to to try and uh, get the win for Brooklyn, and he missed. And then Middleton was able to ice it at the free throw line. So, what did you see out of that game, Caddy? Do you think that uh, Milwaukee are back in this series, or do you think it was just the fact that Brook, uh, Brooklyn just had a, a total outlier game? Durant finished with thirty points, but he didn't shoot well at all from the field. Kyrie Irving was horrible from the field. Joe Harris couldn't hit a shot. I think he was one of ten. I haven't got the boss score in front of him, but I think he was one from ten. So do you think it was just a matter of Brooklyn missing shots that would normally hit, or do you think Milwaukee have perhaps stumbled upon something here? Oh, no, I think credit goes to Milwaukee for you know a, a the way they started the game, obviously, and gave themselves you know really good momentum. You know that that nineteen point quarter time lead was, was fantastic, and then. You know, Brooklyn fought their way back in, but they were able to ha- hang on. Milwaukee, they had dropped this game, and you'd, you'd almost be talking, you know, a potential sweep here, which would be just a horribly disappointing return for the Bucks if they were, to, you know, losing four in this series. So, look, they they've given themselves a chance. You know, it's two one um, with with you know obviously the next game back in Milwaukee as well. So they've got a chance to level the series. I just don't know whether or not they're going to get another game where you know Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant hit 20 for 50 between them. So, um, you know, Kevin Durant had the Probably unlikely, you'd reckon. Yeah, 30 points on 28 field goals attempted. Kyrie Irving had 22 points on 22 field goals attempted. So I don't think they're going to get inefficient nights from the both of them. Um, Again, as you mentioned, Joe Joe Harris, who was one from 11 in this game, one from seven from three. So, look, they're never going to shoot that poorly again. And if Milwaukee thinks they're going to score 86 points and win another game, I think they'll be absolutely kidding themselves. So, Look, you know, Giannis and Middleton obviously had the 33, 35 points, but there was just nothing, you know, underlying behind that. Drew Holiday was the next best scorer with just nine. So they're going to need, obviously, more out of guys like PJ Tucker, who laid an egg, Bryce, uh, Bryn Forbes laid an egg. You know, the, the rotation does get pretty thin at that point. So, you know, look, I think there's still real alarm bells here for Milwaukee. I hate the fact that, you know, you mentioned Giannis had a, had a, took a few too many open shots. He was one from eight from three. The fact he's even attempting eight three-point shots in a, ridiculous. In a second round playoff is, is absolutely ridiculous. I don't know if it's the coaching or whether surely, you know, surely Bud, Coach Bud, I know Giannis is a two-time MVP and I understand the way the NBA works. It's it's hard for the coaches to sort of have a crack at, at, at the star players, but some somebody has to get to Giannis and say, for God's sake, stop shooting the open three. They're leaving you open for a reason. They don't want you to drive. You're, you're an absolute menace in the paint when you get in there. Why the hell are you shooting these open jumpers? It's 
It seems to be he's the only one that thinks that's a good shot. It, it, it is dumbfounding. Yeah, it's quite. It's almost criminal, really, the fact he is taking them. And, and I don't know, as you said, who's giving him the license, whether that's part of the, the game strategy or it's just Giannis um, thinking he's capable of or being super confident that he can hit these shots. But as you mentioned, he, he's alone out there for a reason. And you know, for him to be attempting eight three-pointers in a game, is just it just shouldn't be happening. And so they've got to address that. Uh, because you know, as we saw, eighty-six points in a game, you could and won it, it won this time, but it's not going to win it again. And you know, they're going to have to find other ways to to score offensively here. Look, I, I do have concerns for Milwaukee. Um, look, you know, they for, for their sake, I really hope they can you know continue to dig deep and, and fight through and, and try and level this series. But look, I'd be leaning towards Brooklyn coming out and uh, and taking a three-one lead here in, um, in this game tomorrow. You know, the one concern you'd probably still have, and we spoke about it a week or so ago, was, you know, they're obviously missing James Harden now. The rotation has got really, really thin. Uh, the benches just Claxton, Mike James and Landry Shamit. You know, and it doesn't really look like they're, they're prepared to play uh, TLC or, um, you know, DeAndre Jordan or any of these other guys. So Jeff Green, you know, are... maybe, I think they said he's questionable for the next game. So he must be due back shortly, hopefully, for their well, sake. Well, that'll be a really big inclusion for for Brooklyn to be able to just share that load out a little bit more. But um, look, I, I think they they've shown in they, particularly those first two games and and really from uh, quarter time on, onward in game three that they're they're going to be too good for this uh, Milwaukee outfit, and I think they're going to get through this series relatively comfortable. And um, you know, then you know we're going to like if the Clippers lose again, if they do bow out in this round. There'll be similar obituary stories written about Milwaukee and, and their inability to capitalise in the playoffs because you know they they've spent a, the three or four years really building into this point and if they just continue not to be able to proceed deeper into the playoffs and you know the the question marks are going to well the questions are going to continue to be asked and I think Brooklyn at this stage are just going to be too good and I, I'd almost expect them to to take this series out in in five games. Yeah, I don't think it's too sort of over the top to say that the game three win for Milwaukee saved Mike Budenholzer's coaching job at uh, at uh, Milwaukee. Because if, if they had lost game three, I can't see how they could continue to go down that path. Given the way he coaches his team, for once he actually played their star minutes, massive, so, sorry, their star players, massive minutes. Giannis and, and Middleton were, were in the mid, you know, early to mid 40s, which is what everybody's been crying out for, but he just stubbornly refused to do so. So he actually did that and they got the win. So, I mean, maybe it's just, keeping the Wolves at bay, that if they do go out, you know, 4-1, his, his job still has to come under pressure. But I'm just looking at this, trying to work out how Milwaukee can make this a series because I agree, I totally agree with you. The way it's situated at the moment, it certainly looks like Brooklyn are going to stroll to a pretty a pretty easy series win here. But they just need more support. Chris, I see Chris Middleton had been horrible those first two games. He was outstanding in game three. So... The pressure has to come onto Drew Holiday. I had mentioned that the difference that we that we were getting between him and Eric Bledsoe uh, was was a massive jump up for them, and it certainly proved that in in round one. So in round one, he averaged fifteen points a game, nine point eight assists, forty eight percent from the field. So so this series here against Brooklyn, he's down at thirteen points a game, four point seven assists, shooting thirty nine percent from the field. This is a guy who was who was signed a max contract with the Milwaukee Bucks. So they gave up a shitload of draft picks, as we know, to get him, uh, and they've signed him to a max deal. He's got to be given him more than 13 points a game, 4.7 assists, and shooting 39% from the field. So you mentioned the fact that they're, they're, they've got no depth uh, on the bench, and they don't. 
They're not getting a lot out of Brooke Lopez. They're basically not going to him much at all for whatever reason in the paint because he's got he's got some moves down in the paint and they're clearly undersized Brooklyn, but they're refusing to use him. So they need Drew Holiday to to, to be averaging close to twenty and ten ten assists for for this for the rest of this series for them to be any chance of of progressing through to the to the Eastern Conference Finals. What are you seeing out of Holiday Caddy? Do you think he's just taking a little bit of a back seat? He's too sort of, you know, giving up too many shots to Giannis and Middleton? Or do you, do you think basically he needs to be more aggressive and, and live up to this contract? Well, I reckon if this was Bledsoe, he'd, you know, if Bledsoe put in these top of performances, it'd be massive, massive news. Oh, 100%. It, it was such a... Such an easy target uh, previously. So why then? Why then a guy and Bledsoe wasn't on a max contract, but Holiday is. But he just sort of flies under the radar. I'm not sure why a guy who they gave up so much to get and they've signed, as I said, to a max contract is is escaping the criticism. That, as you rightfully put it, if it was Eric Bledsoe, we, we'd be eating him alive at the moment. Yeah, he seems to be a bit of an NBA media love child, um, Drew Holiday. I think <laughs> for, for many years, I think it goes back to his time. In New Orleans, and I think he had a you know a, a sick wife at the time, and he did some you know fantastic yeah. things in the community there. He, he seems to have been able to escape. You know, we know he's a he's a terrific player, but he's he's been a terrific player without ever really producing anything outside of the regular season. Um, he's never really been able to dominate um, in any sort of situation he's been in previously. And if he you know if they bow, bow out here without too much of a whimper, then I think the question mark does have to to come on to Drew Holiday a little bit and about. You know, you know that long-term contract that he's on, and and you know obviously what they what they sort of had to give up to to get him in there. So look, we know he's a, an absolutely elite defensive player. We, you know, there's no doubt about that. Um, but yeah, I think for them to you know to be able to move forward here, they they need him as the not not just you know the third wheel. He needs to be like one A, one B, and one C. He needs to almost get up to that same level as Giannis and, and Chris Middleton, and, and take that additional responsibility um, offensively because they do need the support there. Uh, particularly, you know, when when we know that they, you know, they're not getting much support, you know, outside of that. So, no, that, it's a big game for him. You know, we know defensively he's carrying a big load there with the star power on that Brooklyn Nets team. But um, you know, he, they're doing it without James Harden at the moment, and that that would only make the task a hell of a lot more harder. So, you know, you, you want to see Milwaukee here in Game Four really step it up, and and you you want them to come out and really fire and. And show them that they're they're in this series and have a really strong win. I just can't see it happening with the, the way we've seen them play so far here, and, and the way the Brooklyn, are, you know, the, the upside. I still think that that they have in their roster. So, look, it, it's going to be quite interesting. Look, if they do get it get it into two two, then you know you never you, you never know anything can happen. But um, you know, I, I just can't see how you know the way they're playing it, it's sustainable um, in any length of, in this series. No, I agree. So I'm seeing Brooklyn close this out in five. Is that the way you're leaning? Yeah, that's where I'm leaning. I think uh, Brook, uh, Brooklyn will be backing to win tomorrow and then close it out in, in, at home in game five. And uh, look, I, I really hope that, that that's not the case and Milwaukee can dig in, find another gear, um, show us the, the type of team they have been in the regular season the past few seasons and, and really make a fist of it because, yeah, you can almost read the, the back page stories but what will be written if they do flame out here pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I I hope for the sake of this. Everyone was so excited for this series, and it just turned out to be such a massive disappointment. So it would be good if if Milwaukee could sort of get it all together and play the way they did against Miami. It's obviously a, a different proposition against Brooklyn. They're obviously a much stronger team than Miami. But, yeah, the, the obituary will be written for Milwaukee if, if they're able to – if Brooklyn close it out in five. I 
as I, as I mentioned previously, I I can't see Boone and Olsa holding on to his job if if they go out in five. So there could be another coaching uh, position up for grabs, uh, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of coaches happy to stick their hand up and, and coach uh, Giannis. So it'd be interesting to see how that series does close out. So we'll jump over uh, to the last series in the East. That's the, the Philadelphia 76ers versus the, the Atlanta Hawks. And heading into game one, Caddy, the biggest question mark was whether Joel Embiid was going to play. He had that that meniscus injury that we saw him miss the last game of, of the Washington series. And, and and we probably both thought that he wasn't going to play game one and, and that might make it difficult for for Philly to, to take game one. But he actually did come out and play, which was a bit of a surprise. But it was Atlanta who jumped out of the blocks and they were actually up by 26 points uh, during that second quarter. And it looked like, what the hell is going on here? Uh, Trey Young was tearing him apart. And and the ridiculous thing, well, not, well it was ridiculous, because the surprising thing was that... Uh, Doc Rivers decided to not go with Ben Simmons, the runner-up in Defensive Player of the Year, or Matisse Thybul, one of the best perimeter defenders uh, in the NBA, to guard Trey Young. He decided to go with Danny Green, which was j- just ridiculous and the wrong decision. And do you know how it was the wrong decision, Caddy? Because in Game 1, Danny Green uh, defended Trey Young on 49 plays. In Game 2, do you know how many times he defended him? Twice. So, so I think Doc Rivers realised the mistake he made, but... What did you think of that, Caddy? I, I, for the life of me, can't figure out how anybody on the Philadelphia 76ers coaching staff looked at who they have on their roster and went, you know who the best the best person to, to guard Trey Young is? Danny Green, a guy who, who has, has a reputation, yes, as being a, a, a good defender for, you know, some wings, but I can't remember him ever shutting down a, a, down a, a shifty guard. So that was a staggering decision to me. Yeah, look, I think they might have thought it was 2014 and, you know, it was Danny Green back in the Spurs days where he was, you know, a, a great lockdown defender. But um, no, clearly the wrong decision. And we, and we spoke about leading into the series, the fact of, you know, the real assets that Philadelphia had at the perimeter defensively was going to be what we thought, you know, could potentially find uh, Trey Young out. So, you know, that that's kind of has almost been now the case in the last couple of ga- games. You know, Young's obviously found it a lot more more difficult, you know, to create offense against, you know, the, the, the more powerful defenders that he's that he's get, getting thrown at against at the moment. So yeah, really interesting. And you know, that whole game one was quite a quite a bizarre game and it, you know, it, 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 in its entirety it was a surprise A to see him bed start and then you think, oh well, you know, maybe this is gonna be pretty pretty easy work for the seventy sixes at full strength and, and then all you know, we saw Atlanta come out firing and, and you know, really put a cat amongst the pinches in, in this series and get out to that one nil lead. So, you know, things have leveled itself out now with Philly winning game three on the road and taking the 2-1 advantage. So this, again, like the Brooklyn-Milwaukee series, the next game, game four, is going to be hugely important to see whether Atlanta have got any more fight left in them uh, to fight back into the series and, and level it up and, and try and make it a long series. But, yeah, I mean, Philadelphia, to their credit, have re- rebounded really, really well from that game one shock loss and, and put themselves now in a really strong position in the series. Yeah, so, so you mentioned how strange that game one was. So as I mentioned, it, Atlanta jumped out to a 26-point lead. Philly actually got to within three points with a minute left in the game, but Atlanta were able to close it out. Trey Young, 35 points. I think it was 20, 25, I think, of those in the first half when Danny Green was defending him. And Simmons did go on into it and got two early fouls in that third quarter, but, but they did shift up the defense a little bit on him. So they... They were able to confine him a little bit more in in that second in that second half. Embiid had an, had a massive game despite the fact he was under an injury cloud with thirty nine points and nine rebounds. Game two, we expected Philly to be able to bounce back. We we thought that we'd see uh, Danny Green not on Trey Young, and as I said there when I ran through the numbers, the fact that he only defended him on two possessions that was certainly the case. Philly jumped out of the blocks. 
in game two. They're up by 13 points at quarter time, led by 16 points from Tobias Harris, who was outstanding in that first quarter. They were going to him, and he was in the post, and he was just hitting some nice little turnaround shots. But Atlanta got back into it in that second quarter. Uh, they got 10 points out of Gallo and 10 points from Kevin Huerta off the bench. And it was only a two-point lead to Philly after that, had that big lead at quarter time. But it was Embiid, Embiid in that third quarter, had 17 points. Uh, and it was a seven-point lead at three-quarter time. And then we had the Shake-Milton game caddy. Uh, Milton off the bench had eight points in the last quarter, 14 points in total in 14 minutes after he'd been a non-factor, basically during the whole playoff run for Philly up to that date. So he'd, he'd had a pretty good year. Uh, coming off the bench of Philly, but it just sort of found it difficult to to crack the rotation and have any impact. But he was really good in game two uh, to get him across the line. Embiid had the 40 points and 13 rebounds, and and Tobias Harris, after that good start, uh, finished with 22 points. Uh, game three, as you mentioned there, was, was basically uh, Philly, again, j- just coming away with a pretty comfortable win, 127 to, to 111. Again, they started the game really well, 28 points uh, to 20, so up by eight points a quarter time. Philly were just turning the ball over far, far too easily. They had six turnovers in in that first quarter, and Philly got 17 points off the bench, which really nobody expected. 11 of those coming from Furkan Korkmaz, who who caught caught fire, hit three for three. I think two of those were from three, and one he got a, got foul shooting a three and knocked down all free throws. So... Uh, Atlanta's offense in that second quarter started to come to life. Trey Young had 11 points, and Bogdanovich and, and Collins both had eight. So halftime, it was only Philly by two. Uh, but in the third quarter, it was, was basically where they were able to put some, some space on them. And I thought, Caddy, it was really good to see Ben Simmons in that third quarter. He was super aggressive. He was driving, particularly early on in that third quarter. And he finished the quarter with 11 points and three assists. And I'm sure you saw that one assist, that one-handed pass he threw to Embiid for that dunk, which was great. And Embiid had 11 points as well in that third quarter. Uh, and they, they're up by 17 at, at three-quarter time. And then and that was basically all she wrote from there. So so I think you mentioned there, Caddy, it looked like Philly had basically got themselves back on track and we're pretty much looking like they were going to be able to finish this series off. Is that how you've sort of seen it after game one? Have they been able to figure out how to best guard Trey Young, obviously with Ben Simmons and Matisse Thibel off the bench, and that's sort of thwarted Atlanta's ability to score? And the fact, obviously, that they haven't got anybody Atlanta this is to guard Joel Embiid, do you think that's basically series done now? Look, I think it, it, it probably will be. Look, I, I am still giving Atlanta this one more chance in Game 4 here to, to level things up and, and make it a series. But I think Philadelphia have shown now that they're, you know, they've been able to settle into the into the series now after Game 1. And Bede looks back to you know almost his full strength um, in what he can do. And you know, he's just becoming so, so hard to stop. And when Simmons gets, you know, gets aggressive and gets you know, really um, up and down the court and playing with some real power and energy, he's just a totally different player. Now, the... The interesting thing will be Danny Green. You mentioned him earlier in that game one defensive issues he had. Now, he's going to miss two to three weeks with a calf uh, injury, so we won't see Danny Green again in the series. So, not that we who know do they there. start? Who do they start in his place? Because I think I heard somewhere that they're, they're starting five for Philly has got the best net rating in the playoffs so far. Easily, it's been absolutely outstanding. So, who do you think that they're going to start in his place? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think it'll be probably be Corkmaz. I think we'll we'll come in and, as that sort of three and D type um, type player. So he obviously was the guy that caught firing in game three. So I'd I'll be um, probably looking at him to take that take that sort of small forward role in this team. So look, we we, we know the Phillies certainly don't rely on Danny Green, you know, to do much more than, than you know than the limited 
things that he does do. But as you said, as he's only shooting eleven percent from three, so it's not as if he's knocking down those threes. Maybe Matisse Thybul could be obviously another option as well for that defense. Yeah, certainly another option. But I think they they you know do like Thybul in that in that reserve role. So look at you know I think they they do have some options. They go you know does George Hill get some extra game time now as well and play sort of the three guards with him, Simmons, and Curry. Um, you know they've got quite a lot of options in this roster. You know, so I'm not overly concerned. You know, obviously, just more from a system point of view for Philly is probably the issue. But I think you know, just replacing Danny Green like for like with another player, I think they they're deep enough to be able to certainly um, recover and do that. But yeah, obviously, not great news. And you know, and, and it could become more significant. You know, that out as as Philly try and go deeper into the playoffs. You know, certainly if they were coming up against Brooklyn in the next series potentially, then. You know, Danny Green's a guy I'm sure they would have liked to, to have out there to, to, you know, to really assist particularly on that defensive end. So, uh, but look, all in all, I think Philly are going to, you know, be too strong for the Atlanta Hawks. Um, you know, they, they've been exciting. They, they've stood up to the plate so far. Atlanta, there's no doubt about that. But I just wonder, as you mentioned, you know, is Joel Embiid capable of being stopped now in this series? And, um, you know, he's almost... Uh, looking too powerful at this stage, and and you know Trey Young's going to have to continue to do incredibly amazing things. Really, you know he's almost like going to have to, you know, kind of go Luka Doncic and 40, 40 odd points a game here um, in the rest of the series for them to to make it to make it through. But uh, look, I, I think Philly, um, in all likelihood, will probably win these next two games and close it out in five. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm you're just looking at at Atlanta and you and you're wondering where. They can who they can get more out of. Obviously, it's a huge blow for them for DeAndre Hunter to be ruled out of the series because he he was really good in the series against New York. He obviously defended Julius Randle for a lot of that, and and can obviously add at the offensive end as well. But when you're looking at at the at the roster of of uh, Philly of sorry of uh, Atlanta, there's not really anyone who's massively underperforming what they're capable of. So I'm not I'm not quite sure where they're going to get that lift from to be to be able to compete. With Philly, so yeah, for me, I, I totally agree. I think this series is is probably done in, in in five as well. So, so as I said to you last week, Caddy, I've I've been asking you this question each week. If you were going for somebody out of the West, who are you going with? Are you sticking with your Utah prediction from last week, or or is what you've seen out of Phoenix been enough to shift you in their direction? Well, you, you know the way Phoenix are playing, you'd be a brave man to sort of back against them at this stage, based on the way that their series is currently constructed. Obviously, at the moment with the three nil lead, but look, I'll, I'll stick fat with Utah. I'll, I'll um, you know, I, I, as I said, I think that series will go seven, and I and I do hope that they can get through. So, if that is the case, I'll I will stick with them at this stage. But gee, the gap's getting really, really close, and Phoenix are continue to surprise me, and I'm sure others in the way that they've really handled their business um, so far in the playoffs. So, look, I'll stick with Utah in the West just by a hair to Phoenix. Yeah, I'm going with Phoenix. As I mentioned earlier, they've they've just impressed me no end. The way the way they've been, they've been playing both offensively and defensively, and Chris Paul doesn't seem hampered at all by that, that shoulder injury that he had earlier on in the playoffs. So if he can continue to play at this level, Devin Booker continues to step up to the plate. DeAndre Ayton's been fantastic defensively. They're getting Crowder and 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 all these guys just chipping in and, and doing what they need to do. I, I'm I'm siding with Phoenix from what I've seen so far in the West. In the East, it seems pretty clear cut to me that Brooklyn are the, are the team to beat. Is 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 that the way you're leaning, or do you think Philly are a chance of putting up some sort of fight in the finals? I, I agree that the injury to Danny Green on face value, when you look at you know his numbers, doesn't seem like it's a big out. But there's no doubt he would have been charged, you know, probably with a Kevin Durant assignment at stages. So losing him certainly means they're going to have to look towards somebody that they wouldn't 
probably normally in that situation. So as silly as it sounds, an injury like that can can make it so much harder for a Philly team to come up against Brooklyn because everything would have to go right for Philly to beat Brooklyn. And just a little thing like that for me just means that, that it's going to be so much more difficult. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, no doubt. Look, I think last week I did still have Philly as my team coming out of the East. Look, I don't think I've seen enough to, to move the needle on that for me. So I'll, I'll stick with Philly. Oh, you're stubborn. You're very yeah, stubborn. I'll, I'll, I'll stick with them. I'll stick fat. I like what I've seen out of Simmons yeah, in the last game or so. If MB can stay you know, in, in tip-top 100% health, then you know, I, I think that look, they're the number one team all season. In the East, you know, Brooklyn have still not been able to get those big three out consistently. In any you know in any meaningful run here, when does Harding come back? We really don't know. Do they uh, even need him to win the title? That that's got to be the question. As stupid as that sounds, it's looking pretty no, good. It's a good question. Look, I, look, it, it seems an absolute luxury. And I think if you know if the Brooklyn team you've got right now is up against the Philly team that you, they've got right now, well, it's a you know it's a really tight contest. And you know Brooklyn might still have enough to to get past without Harding. But look, I, I think. You know the way Philly are constructed. I think they've shown enough all season to you know to be given that due recognition that they you know they're still the team to get past for me. And um, you know particularly if they can have a, an easy an easy series win here against Atlanta, that'll fill them with confidence. And you know I'll stick with them just for now as well. Fair enough. I like you sticking to your guns, Caddy. <laughs> I, 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 I gotta gotta commend you on that. Just before, quickly before we go, we saw the MVP announced during the week, and it was obviously no surprise that it was Nikola Jokic. He, he, he was a runaway winner. He got 91 first-place votes out of a possible 100. Uh, in second place was Joel Embiid, uh, and in third, third place was Steph Curry. So, as I said, no surprise that Joel Embiid won that. We, we don't need to talk too much about him. We've spoken about him a lot uh, throughout the season. It was Giannis in fourth place and Chris Paul in fifth place. Was there anything that surprised you about the voting? The one thing that stands out like a, a sore thumb is the fact that Derek Rose got a got a first place uh, vote, and and this was a fan vote that no fan knew about. Who the hell even knew that there was a fan vote for the MVP? Was that something that only Tom Thibodeau knew about? Because even if there was a fan vote that people knew about, why the hell is Derek Rose getting that? He's not the most popular player in the NBA, and he was obviously didn't have a great season, so that was baffling. Did. Had you even heard that there was a fan vote? Because I haven't heard anybody on any media say, yeah, I knew there was a fan vote because I certainly didn't know there was one. Yeah, I wasn't really across that either, but I'm just reading something here now. They're saying for the 12th consecutive season, the NBA and Kia America gave fans the opportunity to vote for the Kia. So for 12 years, no one's known about it. That's right. So the fan vote conducted online and through Twitter counted as one vote towards uh, determining the winner. So I don't really know how that really works. But yeah, that was the thing that stood out for me um, in terms of in terms of that, was um, yeah, the, the Derek Rose vote. Look, I think outside of that, when we did our MVP prediction, MVP predictions, I think we both had that top three: Jokey, Embiid, and Curry. And then it was really Giannis, Chris Paul. I think you had in there. I had Luca um, at fifth. He finished sixth. So you know, I think it pretty much went to to script um, outside of the the Derek Rose vote and the Russell Westbrook one third place vote as well. I think <laughs> the other. What the hell is going outlier. on there? So look, you know, I think the one even for me was LeBron James only got the one fifth place vote. So I think. For, you know, for a guy that was, you know, getting talked about at the halfway point as a potential winner, that was potentially a surprise. But you know, particularly if we're talking that there was a fan vote involved. So, now nah, look, Jokic, clear the clear um, MVP for this regular season, and absolutely great re- recognition for him. The forty-first um, pick in the draft um, that he was taken in, so it's really an incredible story that he's been able to you know conquer the league in, in this type of manner. And you know, hopefully, he can spark a, a four-game run here against Phoenix, which I think will be unlikely. And, um, but, yeah, no, Jokic is 
uh, was the, the clear winner. And um, great to see Embiid as well, you know, really play out his potential that, that we know that he's had and, and stay relatively healthy this year to finish second. Yeah, two centres at the top of the MVP MVP ballot is great to see. And Nikola Jokic pick 41, I think he was off the top of my head. So the, the highest or lowest draft pick in, in the history to ever win an MVP, the previous lowest was both Giannis and, and Steve Nash, who I think were both pick 15 off the top of my head. So, you know, full credit to Jokic. You come into the league as, as a chubby uh, chubby sort of white European guy that nobody knew too much about. I'm sure you probably saw the, the footage that was floating around on Twitter. He was actually drafted during a commercial for Chick-fil-A or Subway or something. So he, he, the, the, the draft wasn't even on. It was in an ad break when uh, when Nikola Jokic was drafted. So that's just, just a hats off to him to be able to come along in leaps and bounds and end up being a, a, obviously a, a clear-cut MVP winner. And I'm sure now that everybody knows you said there, what was it, the 13th year in a row or 12th year in a row that they've had that fan vote? Obviously, the fans had been pretty smart in previous years and and, and no one had even noticed that there was a fan vote because, yeah, as I said, everybody saw it was Derek Rose and once it was announced it was a fan vote, everybody said, who the hell knew there was a fan vote? So now we all know there's a fan vote and next year we'll be able to jump online, Caddy, and vote and make sure that uh, someone like Derek Rose doesn't get that fan vote because that was just, it was just uh, ridiculous. Imagine it had been 99 first-place votes for Jokic and one fan vote was the one that stopped uh, Jokic from being a unanimous MVP. That uh, I think a bit, a bit more of a, a stink would have been kicked up about that. But uh, luckily that didn't happen. Uh, so we'll call it there, Caddy. Again, another extra long one. We've been going long during these playoffs, as you'd expect. But it's uh, fantastic to, to break down all these series and, and see some exciting basketball. As I say every week, thank you to everybody who continues to download the podcast. Jump on Apple Podcast, uh, give us a five-star rating. Uh, we'd, that'd be much appreciated. And also jump on that Facebook page and like that because we post the uh, the episodes there every week. And until next week, we'll speak to them.